Okay, well, today, um, as part of this summer series that we're doing, which is basically, I've said to the folks who are, who are preaching this, this, uh, this season, I've said, look, you do whatever you want. This is a free-for-all. You can just, whatever you feel God's laying on your heart. And so this morning, I'm going to be talking about some things that connect with our everyday life, things that are in the news, things that are uh, challenging us, pushing us as Christians and how it is that we should live. And so that's the big question. How shall we live? How do we make moral choices? How do we make ethical choices? Well, it's really, really broad, isn't it? All of this stuff. So I'm trying today to drill down and bring some principles that can help us understand how it is that we connect with Jesus and the asking of these bigger questions. Um, on the news at the moment, and uh, some of my work this coming week uh, is all about the euthanasia bill. Uh, we're bringing in New Zealand, they're looking at bringing in an assisted dying bill. And uh, this week, as part of my Baptist role, I'll be putting in a submission to the select committee just to push back against what will be uh, the beginning of a very, very uh, strategic social engineering endeavour by our government. And the legislation that's being proposed is the most liberal that is in the world today. And so... I'm going to be pushing back on that, try to get into the process and get some things going. And so we asked the questions, how do, how do Christians engage with these sorts of questions? In California, on the 1st of January this year, marijuana was decriminalised like some other states in the United States. And uh, New Zealand is going down that path quite quickly. We're going to be entering into a time very quickly where medical marijuana will be used. Uh, for obviously for medical purposes, but as we've seen around the world, this is just the, the thin end of the wedge, isn't it? Because it won't be long until socially you'll be able to engage with that as well. And there's lots of pros and there's lots of cons, but even my own kids, well, kids, the youngest one's 23, they tell me that they see this as a gateway drug. They've seen their friends go down this track, and so it leads to heavier and harder stuff. And so we live in a world where there's so much pressure upon us and how do we connect and relate to the world that's around us. I've been reading articles that have come out of the States in the last year or two of how it is that youth leaders are engaging with their youth groups about smoking marijuana. So look guys, you know, it's not not legal, illegal anymore, so therefore you can uh, ask the question as to what you should do with this. Instead of saying you shouldn't, they're trying to engage with the kids and try to get them to come to a rational decision themselves about the, about the challenge that this face, they're faced with this. And so we've got lots and lots of tensions around the world, and these are just a couple that are impacting us at the moment. Of course, it's very easy just to go, well, as a Christian, we just simply ask the question of, what would Jesus do? Eh? That's easy, isn't it? What would Jesus do? And uh, we go to the Scriptures. But if you do that, you might come up with this answer. If anyone asks you what would Jesus do, remind him that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibility. All right? That's right. So any young people here, when you cry out to dad and say, dad, dad, be merciful, be like Jesus, you might be in trouble. Okay? You might get more than you bargained for. Okay, so Jesus, of course, in this scenario, flipping over tables, he was pushing back on people who were taking advantage of religious worship, taking advantage of the fact that there were people there who came to the temple with contrite hearts, wanting to bring their best for Jesus. And these folks were taking advantage by selling them things as way of sacrifice at inflated prices and making a lot of money out of it. So 
what would Jesus do? Maybe that's not the easiest answer to the biggest questions. But of course, we look at Scripture and we're reminded that we should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we know that wav works, don't we? Everybody wav one another. Life will be beautiful. Just need more wav. All you need is wav. Da, 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 da. Yeah? Love, that's supposed to be the, the all-round medicine for every ill. Isn't it true? But even that poses a whole lot of questions. How do we love one another? How do we love one another? Because people want to be loved and need to be loved in different ways. Michaela and I, in our first few years of marriage, went through those normal things, normal things of uh, disagreeing, arguing, trying to understand one another. And uh, we got on to a book written by Gary Smalley called The Five Languages of Love. How many of you have ever come across this? That's fantastic. It was revolutionary for us. Because we realised that we were loving on each other, but loving on each other in the wrong way. See, Michaela's natural love language is gift-giving. She just likes to wrap up little packages and give them to you. And, and so I was receiving all these lovely little gifts. But it was when we just, sort of around the time, we were just getting into having children. And um, I was the only breadwinner at the time. And so she'd buy a gift. I'd look at the bank account gone down. And I'm going, thanks, honey. I have to walk to work again. You know, and... Um, and, and yet for me, my gift giving, um, I'm, by nature, I'm an opportunity giver. So, and so I'd go to Michaela and say, why don't we do this? Why don't you do this? Why don't you have a look at this? Have you ever thought about doing that? All she was hearing is, you're not good enough and I want to improve you. You see how that works? Yeah. So here I was loving on her, opening as many doors as possibility that I could, trying to create opportunities for her to enjoy life, experience life, and she just thought she wasn't good enough in my eyes, because I was trying to recreate her. And here she was buying me gifts which I felt we couldn't afford, and I was getting loved in a way, in a way that I didn't like either. So it wasn't until we read the book and I realised she was wrong. I mean, we were both wrong. <laughs> we, she was, we, were both, we were both right, but we were getting it wrong. Yeah? You've been there. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah? You know what I'm talking about, because we've all, we've all done that. We've all done that. So... Just to say let's love on one another is not easy as it might sound. Is that fair to say? And when we throw in age difference, we throw in gender difference, we throw in cultural difference, all of these things become very, very different. I can remember being up in Papua New Guinea one time, having a celebration meal after we'd been working with the churches up there, and they cooked a whole lot of chickens. And, um, and they were sort of like a hungi, it's called a umu up there. And uh, they pulled all these chickens out and they've been covered with palm branches and so they had this sort of green slime over them. And uh, we were looking at it going, oh, okay. And of course, they honoured us with the best parts of the chicken and the best parts of the chicken are the fat. When you live in a culture where you don't have animal fat, which they don't, uh, to honour somebody is to give them the best part of the meal. So we got given all the fat and the skin to eat. It was lovely, not... Okay, so these are the things that you run into all the time, don't you? All these differences of culture. And so we ask that question again, how do we, how do we get along together? How do we get along together? Brian Hathaway wrote a book called uh, It's Easier to Live Above with the Saints We Love Than Live Below with the Saints We Know. 
okay, because we assume that everything's going to be perfect in heaven, uh, which we'd like to think it will be. Maybe it won't be. Maybe we will still be conflicted by the differences that we carry that would make life more interesting. We've got eternity to work it out. Some of you are going, oh my goodness, <laughs> that might be a problem. Heaven doesn't sound like heaven now. But um, what he is saying here is that church life, Christian life, is always going to be fraught with challenges and tensions. Because why? Because we're imperfect. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen, and therefore all of these challenges are going to become us all the time. So, you know, how do we get along together? Well, a number of years ago now, I went off to a Baptist World Alliance conference. Um, of course, this was going to be the pinnacle of how we get along together, you know, being the fact that there was all these international leaders and Christians there. And so I turned up at Mexico City with Brian Winslade, who was mentoring me at the time. He was the national leader of the Baptist churches at the time. And he said, come along with this, Craig, you'll, you, you'll, you'll enjoy the experience. And so it was a, a lunchtime and we were told to go out to a restaurant, find our own meal. Largely, the conference was catered for. And so we wandered off into the city, and we walked into this big restaurant, an outdoor complex, and uh, there was all these people, all these Baptists around eating meals. And I was with Brian sitting with some Australians, and we noticed that the, the Englishmen, the English Baptists, were having a beer with their lunch. And I was like, beer? At lunchtime? You're kidding me. But that's okay. I looked across, and saw that the Russians were over there knocking back a few vodkas. And I was like, oh, my goodness, you know. But the Englishmen were looking at the guys drinking the vodka, sort of frowning, going, oh, that's a bit weird. But on the far side of the restaurant, on, near the doors, near there was plenty of breeze, the Estonians, who were right up the northern part of Russia, they were knocking back the vodkas, drinking, having cigarettes at the same time, you know. And so the Russians were even looking at them going, man, they are losing it, those guys. They just haven't got it together. And... Uh, so here we are with this mix of Baptists, and you can just sort of look at this mix and you go, how on earth does this work? Well, all I know is that after about a week of debating issues like the authority of Scripture, whether women should be in ministry, whether the gifts of the Spirit are gone or still present, I felt like vodka and cigarettes myself at the end of the week. I've got to say, I think the Estonians were just ahead of the game. You know, they'd been here before. But, um, you know, all of these things about how do we connect with our culture and how do we make sure that we're doing what Jesus wants us to do in any given time. Well, one of the things about being human is that we have these ideals in our lives, don't we, of what things should be like. And uh, I love this little saying. It says, what messes us up the most is the picture inside our head of how we think it's supposed to be. We all carry this. We all have a picture in our mind of who the perfect boss should be, what the perfect wife should be or husband should be, uh, what the perfect child should be, what the perfect pastor should be. You know, and and we, we sort of measure others against what it is that we feel is the ideal that we would like to experience. And, and the challenge with this is that we've got these pictures in our minds in respect to lots and lots of different things that we have going on in our lives. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of the favourite theologians that I've studied over the last, of the last century. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a German. Uh, he was 25 years old when uh, the Nazis came into power during, leading up to World War II. He was a, a pacifist. And being a pacifist, he was dead against violence, dead against war. And um, one of the things that he had done in his early part of his life is... Um, he'd started a community, a Christian community, 
where people came and were residential. And in doing so, they would live their life together. And he literally wrote a book called Life Together. Okay? And it's a classic. But in this book, he makes these bold statements. And and this is one of the boldest statements that he made in the book. It says, God hates the visionary dreamer. And you, you read this and it catches your attention and you go, what on earth is he going on about here? God hates the visionary dreamer. And then he goes on to describe how it is that a visionary dreamer is, in this case, is someone who projects what they think should happen upon others. When you're living in community, their idea of how it is that you should live together, worship together, serve together, sacrifice together, is a picture that this person holds on to dearly to the point where if other people don't meet that expectation, they disappoint the person who's got the vision. You see how this happens? And so they become judge and jury because their vision is so tight. Their vision is so, uh, so rigid. And what he said in doing so in this is that um, ultimately that person will be disappointed with the community that they're part of. And being disappointed with that community, they ultimately become disappointed with God because they feel that that community is, and the picture that they have of that community is something that is God-given. And so we all have to be very careful about how it is that we project upon others expectations of how they should behave because everybody is different. And Bonhoeffer was right when he described how it is that the visionary dreamer is really being an idolater, the holding up an idol in their mind of what community should be, and when people let that picture down, they disappoint them and they disappoint God from their perspective. So you can see how easy that happens, can't you? Because we've all got a picture of how everything should work perfectly. And somehow that perfection is a little bit like you looking at yourself in a mirror, strangely. Funny how that happens, eh? Funny how that happens. So, What messes us up the most is this picture of what we think it should be. Now, we want to jump into the Scriptures here um, because we find that the Apostle Paul deals directly with these sorts of issues of how it is that other people should be living, how we should be living together with other people and not getting ahead of ourselves in respect to our expectations of them. I want to just paint the scene of Corinth. Um, Many years ago, I went through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and First and Second Corinthians, just to really play with your heads now, most scholars will suggest that the books of First and Second Corinthians are actually Second and Fourth Corinthians. There's a dialogue of correspondence going on, okay? And so in First Corinthians, Paul's answering letters from a previous letter, answering questions from a previous letter, and the same with it is in, uh, in Second Corinthians. But the big debate is how should we live together? You see, in Corinth, Corinth was this this place of meeting. If you look at your geography, look at your map, you find that Greece comes down like a tear shape, and then there's this area called Corinth. It's only about a kilometre and a half wide, and then it breaks out to another area called the Peloponnesos, this bit of Greece below. But Corinth is right at this narrow neck. And what would happen in the day is that traders would come and they would take their ships Instead of going right around the bottom of this Peloponnesos, which would take them a long time, they would literally carry their ships and roll them in logs across this this kilometre and a half from the Mediterranean to the Aegean and vice versa. And so it meant that people stayed the night, people traded, and there was this real crossroads of culture. But right in the middle of this town, 
was the, uh, the, 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 the temple dedicated to, to Artemis and temples dedicated to Diana, the goddess of love, the Greek goddess. And so you had a whole lot of mixed up religion going on here too. And so when the church is formed, it's drawing people from previous religions, pagan religions as they worship Greek gods and Roman gods, and also Jews who'd come out of the Jewish tradition and were now seeing Jesus as the Messiah. And so you've got these people all gathering in one place. And here we have some questions about how it is that we're going to live together. And this is a question that Paul is addressing when he says this. Paul says, I have the right to do anything. Now just think about this for a second. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. What's happening here is Paul is wanting to state before he even starts to get into the argument about what is right and what is wrong for people to do in respect to their behaviour, Paul is right up front and he's saying, look, when Christ set us free, we're free indeed. We're free from the 600 plus laws that were the Old Testament rules. We're free from those. Keeping those will not win your salvation. Okay, your salvation is now secure in Christ because Christ himself took upon the cross, he took upon the death, he died to the law for us. Okay, so you're set free, not because of your law keeping, but because of your faith in Christ. Okay, so Paul is saying, you are now free. You're free to do anything you want because nothing that you can do will win the favour of God, anything more that has been bought and paid for by the cross. Okay, if you think that you can add something to your own salvation, on top of the completed work of the cross, that's fundamentally evil because it says that the cross is not complete enough to save you. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're saved by grace. And for that reason, you're free. And so here we are in a time of transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, any transition is going to be confusing. Isn't that right? Any transition is going to be confusing. And in particular, related to how people socialise together. And this story that was being raised by the Corinthian churches is about meat, but it has implications across the whole board in respect to us as Christians today. Now, we go back to our story of who made up the Corinthian community, and you've got pagans, you've got Jews, and you've got Christians. And what would happen is somebody would take their sacrifice to a Roman or a Greek temple, it was then put on the altar and slaughtered as a gift, as an offering to the gods, and then that carcass is hauled around the back, out through the back of the temple, around the back to the butcher down the road, who's then, then paid for it to be, paid for the meat, and then it was sold. Now, the challenge that the Christians were having is what do you do with this meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Should we eat it or should we not? After all, it's been sacrificed to, a, to, a, to another god and has been sold and we've picked it up. So Paul addresses that and he goes, goes down this track. He says, look, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience for the earth is the Lord's and, what, and, and, and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. So Paul is saying, listen, don't even go there. 
You know, don't even ask that question about what it is that has been the history of this meet. If you get invited to somebody's place for dinner, uh, you just eat whatever's laid in front of you. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? Don't question it, okay? Because you don't want to start bringing your conscience or issues of your conscience into this conversation right now. Why? Because everything belongs to the Lord, okay? That's the big picture that Paul's trying to maintain. Now, I spoke to somebody about this um, after the first service in respect to this very question. And this, this guy came up to me and he goes, yeah, I've had that same issue about asking questions about what's being eaten. He said, uh, he says, I'll never buy a pizza from Hell's Pizza. And uh, he said, but I've been to some people's place where Hell's Pizza's been presented as the meal of the day. And he said, I've quite happily eaten it, but I'm not going to go down to the shop and ask for two lusts and one adultery or whatever they're called. I don't know. I've never been there myself, you know, in respect to Hell's Pizza. I understand, I understand the pizza's nice. Um, but out of principle, I won't eat there. It's interesting that Hell's Pizza down the road closed. Yeah, it's now taken over by someone else, but that's by the by. So here we are in a situation where Paul is saying, look, let's not make this issue of conscience bigger than it has to be. But he also knows that he lives in a real world and people do have issues of conscience. So this rolls on a little bit more in this conversation. He starts to unpack it a bit more. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. This conscience thing's coming up, isn't it? I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something that I thank God for? Okay, so it's, it's quite a mix here, isn't it? Paul's saying, look, you can eat this yourself, but there's somebody else in the room there who's having a real trouble with the fact that this has been sacrificed to an idol. And because of the fact that they probably won't eat it, you shouldn't override their conscience. You should respect their conscience and have a tofu burger. Okay? Is that right? Have a tofu burger. Now, issues of conscience are really, really important when it comes to Christian faith. Because your conscience and my conscience will have been shaped differently and we need to learn to respect them. Now, let me give you an illustration of what I mean by conscience. Uh, this is something I've used before and I think it's, it's really well suited to the, the description of what conscience is about. It concerns uh, Charles Spurgeon, great old preacher from over two centuries ago now, uh, 18th century. And Charles Spurgeon was the prince of preachers in London for decades. And uh, he ran a college called none other than Spurgeon's College. And one given morning, he had some of the students, the men from the school, come around to his house and pick him up in their carriage. And uh, he gets out, jumps in the carriage early in the morning, and he notices that all his students are smoking cigars. And he looks at them and he goes, aren't you ashamed to be smoking cigars at this time of the morning? And with that, they all stubbed out their cigars. And as soon as the last one was extinguished, he pulled his cigar out of his jacket and lit it. And they looked at him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, didn't you just say that we shouldn't smoke cigars? He says, no, no, I asked you a question. Shouldn't you be ashamed? Clearly you were. (laughs) 
That's what I mean by conscience. See, now he, 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 he made a point deliberately, didn't he? There, to prove a point about conscience. But, but um, one of the things that we have to keep hold of in our society when we're wrestling with what's right and what's wrong, we always have this background within our Judeo-Christian framework of respecting other people's feelings. Now, in the news this last week, uh, there's been a bit on talkback particularly uh, about an, an incident that happened at the Rhythm and Vines concert uh, or camp or whatever it is in Gisborne. Uh, there was a young woman who was topless, and so she got assaulted, it was videoed, and, and, I, and that, that's terrible, that should never happen. But what she's saying is, look, I'm free, I'm free to do whatever I want, this is my right to walk around this camp topless, and uh, people were ringing up on talkback. And the fascinating thing is how the conversation was weighted. People were saying, yeah, this woman has a right to do whatever she wants, she's an adult, uh, these, these folks um, should just get over it, you know, get, you know get, let, it, let it go. And when someone would ring up and say, oh, yeah, but I think it's offensive, they get poo-pooed, you know, they get pushed down. Oh, no, no, this is, a, this is the land of freedom and rights. And the reason, well, let me put it another way. What I could feel in this conversation was a sense in which people were grasping for something to try to anchor their opinion on, but they, they couldn't find it. Now, years ago, it would have been found in a scripture like these that we're talking about today, where we have a responsibility to other people. So the question would be, why, would I, why should I be allowed to exercise my freedom, in this case being naked, that might offend somebody else? I would stop and I would consider how other people are feeling about this. And on that basis, you would make a decision. But when you're saying this is my right and my rights are, are the highest pinnacle of my freedom, uh, people say that they can do whatever they want without considering somebody else's feelings or objections to what it is that you're doing. And this is what the wrestling match was on Talkback and has been uh, on, on Twitter and all the other media feeds around about this conversation. People really conflicted. They sort of know that's not right, but they don't know how to anchor it anymore. And the fact that you would stop and consider somebody else's feelings is almost lost in the conversation these days. Does that make sense? So we, we, with our Christian faith, understand this. Paul says, look, if you're with somebody and they get offended by something like this, you've got to stop, pull back, and not exercise your freedom. Not that you've lost your freedom. Paul says this, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. You know, we, we often run into scenarios in our lives, don't we, where we're a little bit unsure about whether we should do something. Shall I go to that office party, you know, where I know that the, uh, you know, the guys who are in such and such a department, their goal is to get really drunk and, uh, you know, shall I be hanging out with them? Uh, should I go on that weekend with the guys from work going to go fishing when all I know is that, you know, it's going to be a mess? And these sorts of questions always are around us all the time, aren't they? Just this last few months, I had this sort of thing going on in my head as well. Um, about five or six months ago, I heard that Cat Stevens was coming to the country to play, right? Cat Stevens, 69 years old, and I'm thinking, yeah, I've always liked his music, but uh, Cat Stevens is also called Yusuf, Yusuf Islam, okay? About 30 years ago now, he became a Muslim. So here I am talking about this with my wife, going, 
I'd like to go and see Cat Stevens. She goes, well, but he's a Muslim. I said, oh, I know he's a Muslim. I said, but I want to listen to the songs that he wrote before he was a Muslim. <laughs> but he's singing them as a Muslim. Yeah, but the songs will still be the same. And, uh, you know, morning is broken. It's still the same, morning is broken. You know, you remember the days of the old school yard, Matthew and Son, one weird song called I Love My Dog More Than I Love You. That was his first number one hit. Okay, figure. But anyway, I'm like, oh. and you know what? What I was thinking about, the thing that I thought about was how would the congregation respond if I said to them, hey, I went and watched Cat Stevens in Auckland last night at the Victor Arena. What would the response be from the church? Well, anyway, I went, so. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it was, and it was good, yeah. I, I haven't been converted to Islam. Um, and he told his story. He was very, very gentle. He wasn't evangelical, but he did tell his story about uh, why it is that he laid down the guitar for well, a better part of 30 years. You know, and, um, and now why he's picked it up again. So it was a fascinating little wrestling match you know, about what effect does my, my actions have upon others. You know? Are you all going to go off to the ACDC concert next time it's here because Craig went to Cat Stevens? I don't know. You know. But music's a really big deal in our lives, isn't it? For a lot of us anyway. I can remember when my son was about 18 or 19 years old. Now, he's, he, he's loved playing the drums, still does. And I got in his car one day with him, he was driving, and the music that he had on the CD came on, and it was Screamo. You ever heard Screamo? It just sounds like someone vomiting into the microphone. <laughs> Honestly, it's... Literally like this. And I was like, wow, there's a demon, in, a demon inside your tape deck there, you know, like, get it out. He said, Dad, 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 it's Christian music. <laughs> I'm not that stupid, mate. I didn't come down with the last shower of rain, you know? No, no, Dad, seriously, it is. It's Christian music. And so with that, after we got back from where we were going, we came back in. He said, this is the song that was playing when, you, you, when we turned on the stereo. I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, Googled it, brought it up. Honestly, the lyrics were more Christian than what we sing here on a Sunday morning. And I was like, I don't know what to do with that. I really don't. I mean, I, I couldn't understand a word the guy was saying, but apparently he was praising the Lord. You know? And so what do I what do, I do with that? Uh, you know, thankfully, he sort of grew, grew past it. Yeah. Um, I think he has anyway. Yeah. So as Christians, we've got this tension of conscience, haven't we? You know, how do I stop and consider what other people might feel about my actions? And when you're considering how another person might feel, that's a deep, deep issue of love, isn't it? That's really taking somebody else seriously. And this is where Paul is driving towards. You know, when Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples because you love one another, when you start considering other people's feelings, it doesn't get much deeper than that, really, does it? And this is how Christian community actually works. Because we stop and we look at those around us and we say, could it be that I would give up or I would surrender doing this 
for the sake of somebody else's conscience and how they might feel about it. So instead of asking that question, what would Jesus do? Perhaps um, a better quality of question would be, how does what I do glorify God? Because that changes the whole dynamic. When you ask that question, what would Jesus do? You're looking for an answer. You're looking for a black and white answer. What would Jesus do? He wouldn't do this. Okay, I won't do that. But if you're asking, how does this glorify God? It's a living question, isn't it? It's a live question that you would ask every day over any given situation. How does what I do glorify God? And we we live in a world that's so dynamic, so full of change, that if we ask that question, what would Jesus do? We'd probably find ourselves anchored in time, locked into culture, and probably affirming our culture as being the right way. But if you ask that question, how do I glorify God with my actions? That is a completely different question. I mean, imagine it. Maybe in 20 years' time, you could be sitting in church and you get served communion by a young woman with green hair. You know, I mean, could you imagine that? You're like, oh, gasp. That would never, ever happen. Eh? That would never happen. Man, it's just so too radical for me. Good on you, Sam. One thing about Sammy, you know, you know hair colour's going to be different next week. Yeah, yeah, dynamic. You see, we live in a world where things are changing around us, and we say that the Lord is the same today, yesterday, and forever. It's true. It's his nature and his character. But how does God get glorified? How does, how does Jesus become part of our conversation? And how does he guide our actions and our responses to society? And it's change all around us. These are the big questions that keep us alive and keep our faith alive. Otherwise, it just becomes redundant, doesn't it? It just gets old. It just gets tired, flavorless, and really, really religious. Yeah? And you know what? The thing that Jesus beat up on, when we saw him in the temple that day, he was beaten up on religion. That's what he was beaten up on, religion. So, how do we glorify God? That's the question we want to start with this year, isn't it? Why don't we stand for prayer? Lord, we thank you that as we look at the cross of Christ and we see how the law was fulfilled, we've been given a freedom that is beyond what we deserve or even probably can handle because we stop now and we consider how we honour you and respect our brothers and sisters as we live a life to glorify you. And this is a difficult thing, and it's meant to be difficult, I know, Lord, because of the wrestling that goes on, the challenge, the everyday dynamic of what's right now in this situation. How can we, how can we live a life that, that glorifies God? How can we ensure that we're being good, a good brother or sister in this environment? These are the things that Paul wrestled with, and we will too. So God, I, I just want to pray for your grace. I, I don't pray for an outpouring of answers. I just pray for grace. Allow us, Lord, to consider one another, 
to draw other people into conversation, to lay down some of those old principles, lay down some of those things that we might have felt were defending the very heart of the gospel, and yet it was only a preference, not a principle. Father, all these things are consistently needing renewal and reflection. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, guide us that we might be engaged with your community around us, not building a not building a fence around what it is that you know as your church. Lord, we just want to be there for you. We want to serve you. We want to make you known. We want to make you famous. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.